Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Zombie, the new novel by J.R. Angelella, available now from Soho Press. Here's some explanatory math regarding this book. Zombie equals a coming-of-age story minus sentiment times occultism, or familial strife plus a studied appreciation for the finer points of zombie cinema plus sexual frustration divided by sadomasochism times a thousand. And if that math wasn't helpful, then here are some words. Zombie is a book about a 14-year-old kid with a pill-addicted mother, a sex-addicted brother, classmates addicted to torturing him, and a father who disappears nightly. He survives life with a code cobbled together from the zombie movies he's obsessed with, a code that's put to the test when he finds a video in his father's closet of a stranger strapped to a bed being prepped for surgery. As he traces the video's origin, Zombie moves from a precocious beginning to an end of unthinkable violence. J.R. Angelella's Zombie is now available in paperback and ebook from Soho Press, which has been independently publishing bold new voices in literature since 1986. That's Zombie by J.R. Angelella. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is somewhere inside of your telephone. This is authors overcoming their inherent interpersonal awkwardness. Thank you for tuning in and being here. It's great to be with you. My guest today is Essie Adujan. Uh, her new novel, Half-Blood Blues, is an amazing success story. So for those of you who aren't aware, Essie is Canadian. Her book was published by a small press last August up in Canada. The initial print run was only 3,000, and the book has since gone on to win multiple awards. It's earned countless rave reviews, and it became the number one selling book in all of Canada. And there are now more than 115,000 copies in print, and Picador Paperback Originals has just published it here in the United States. So... It's a great story. Very pleased to have Essie on the program, and she and I are going to be discussing all of that stuff in just a moment. Uh, otherwise, what is happening, uh, it's a little chaotic around here. For those of you who uh, listened to the last show, I feel like I should give you an update. My daughter is doing better. Uh, she's still fighting a virus. Uh, she's kind of, it's kind of working you know, its way through her system, and she is uh, actually having a meltdown as we speak. I don't know if you can hear that. So that's happening. Uh, there are also helicopters flying overhead, which uh, adds a certain layer to the chaos. Uh, not sure if you can hear that either, but there are lots of helicopters in the skies over Los Angeles currently. They could be police helicopters. They could be news helicopters. They could be uh, private helicopters transporting rich people from one end of the city to the other. I don't know. I can't see them. I can only hear them. And frankly, it's at the point now, after 11 years of living here, where helicopters are essentially part of nature, as far as I'm concerned. They're like local birds uh, or giant flying insects. So... Uh, and speaking of uh, giant flying insects, why don't I uh, segue here into uh, a bit of trivia. I was online recently and I read an article about the world's largest insect. And the reason that happened is because I was sitting here uh, and I was supposed to be working. And as I will often do when I'm at a loss for words or I get stuck, I sort of turned to my window in my office and I looked out the window and on my window pane was a, was a bug. And it was bouncing around 
And uh, I started thinking about this bug and I started thinking about the world of insects, which is sort of like this sub world or shadow world. When you think about it, all the billions or even trillions of insects in the world, uh, these tiny little things flying around and breeding and having, uh, these really compressed lifespans, like 24 hours or nine days or whatever it is. And I started thinking about that for some reason. Uh, I started thinking about insects and then I asked myself, what is the largest insect in the world? Like how big are we talking here? Is there something I need to know about? And so, uh, from there I did what people will often do. I ran a Google search and it turns out that there is an insect called the giant Weta. I believe that's how it's pronounced W E T A, the giant Weta. Let's just say it's the giant Weta and it can only be found on a small Island off the coast of New Zealand. And it is a cricket type insect. Uh, I believe they said it's as heavy as three mice <laughs> and it's bigger than, uh, it's bigger than some birds. It has a seven or eight inch wingspan. And, uh, most frighteningly of all, and most interestingly of all, it can eat a carrot. There are actual pictures of this and you can actually feed this, uh, this bug, a carrot, and the bug will eat the carrot with what I presume are little teeth. So, uh, there's that. And then otherwise, you know, I, you know, if you, if you, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I'm, I'm a little bit exhausted. My daughter, because of this virus has not been sleeping. And so the other night, uh, you know, she was, uh, up every 15 minutes crying. She has a sore throat, etc. And so, uh, you know, before we had gotten her properly diagnosed, we thought it was just this cold, uh, and possibly she was having trouble breathing when she was lying down. So, I finally just decided to put her in the car because she likes to sleep in the car and she would be sitting sort of upright in the car seat, which is a sort of an old trick with that parents, um, you know, will often use, you know, just put the kid in the car and drive around and they'll take a nap. And so, you know, I did this at one thirty in the morning, which is what made it odd. And I drove around until five in the morning, like just driving around Los Angeles in circles, uh, trying to get my daughter to go to sleep and it worked uh, moderately well, but uh, the reason I tell you that, I don't know why I told you that. Uh, I think it was kind of an odd experience. It was kind of like, uh, you know, I kind of enjoyed it in a weird way, getting to move around Los Angeles when, when there, when there wasn't much traffic and getting to see the city, uh, at a time when most everybody was asleep, most sane people anyway. So I did that. I'm a little off schedule. My brain is a little bit soft. Uh, I've been thinking about bugs and I've been thinking about, uh, viruses and I think, that probably the best thing to do at this point is for me to stop talking and to let this conversation with Essie Adugin happen. So I'm going to do that. Uh, here she is, ladies and gentlemen. Her book is called Half-Blood Blues, uh, and it's available now from Picador Paperback Originals. I'm in uh, Victoria, British Columbia. Okay, and, and uh, is that like a, uh, where you've been your whole life? Uh, no, I was born in Calgary, in Alberta, which is uh, obviously the next province over, and and just came out here to go to uh, to do an undergraduate degree in writing, and kind of have been here ever since on and off. Okay, so how old are you? Are you you're, you're young, or at least you're in your photo. You look young. Uh, no, not that young. Thirty-four. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm thirty-six. Youngish. So youngish. We're st- I'm, I'm hanging on as, as tightly as I can to <laughs> to young. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature. I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, okay, so Calgary, uh, give me give me like some idea of what that is like. Calgary is a city. Yeah, I mean, like, what is it like to grow up there? I have no uh, frame of reference. Like, is it some place oh, okay. that is it some place that you really enjoyed, or is it some place that you wanted to escape? Like, what was your childhood like? Um. Well, I think maybe um, probably always early on, I I had a sense that it wasn't going to be the place where I finally ended up. Uh, just an innate yeah, sense? It, yeah, it just didn't make sense. And maybe it felt, um, it's probably weird to say that it felt kind of uh, small. You know, it's it's a large city, uh, but it, you know, it really has a small town feel. Uh, and, you know, right now I actually live in a much smaller city, so it's kind of funny to to say that but I just sort of feel like um yeah I, I mean it's a it's a lovely city it's very interesting a lot of uh you know a lot of kind of interesting stuff going on but um I just always felt much more drawn to you know to places like say like Vancouver I always thought I'd end up in Vancouver just you know the west coast okay so okay is because uh, you know I'm down here in the states and I live in Los Angeles which is uh, you know, the biggest city on the West Coast. <laughs> and I feel like, you know, the people that I grew up with and people I went to school with, um, f- there, there was a lot of fleeing to the coasts. And some people went east and some people went west. And, mm-hmm. what you know, and, and whether or not that happened or how that happened, uh, I think to some extent spoke to uh, personality or sensibility. And so, you know, a certain kind of person gravitates to New York, for instance, a certain kind of person, uh, heads West, you know, is there, is there a similar thing in, in Canada where certain people, um, you know, go to Vancouver and certain people say, go to Toronto or Montreal? Yeah, I guess I would say that definitely. Um, you know, there's a sense of, especially a place like Vancouver Island, uh, that, you know, has very much this sort of, uh, you know, very laid back, very sort of post hippie kind of uh, uh, sensibility, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, it's that's also a cliche uh, to some extent. But there's some truth in it, and so yeah, you do sort of feel like it's you know if you're kind of outdoorsy or if you're you know sort of want something a little bit slower, uh, you know, it's a great place to be. Uh, in Toronto, Montreal, I think. You know, Toronto being a big publishing center and Montreal being just, you know, you just have a sense of of uh, those places being, you know, much more, uh, sort of much more fast-paced and, and uh, I guess, artsy. Well, yeah, and then, like, the history of the population of Canada, like, there's, the West is, is uh, has more of a frontier spirit. Like, it was settled after those cities, correct? Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. a similar, yeah. it's, it's a similar uh, trajectory to the states in terms of how it yes. was settled. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, and so now you're in Victoria, you said? Mm-hmm. Okay, and what is and what is that you know, tell me <laughs> tell me about Victoria. I know nothing. I'm an idiot. Okay, so, yeah. it's it's a smaller smaller city, definitely. Uh, you know, it's it's basically uh, it, it's the largest city on Vancouver Island and it's at the very southern tip of the island. Okay. Uh, so we're probably, I think it's about four hours by ferry from Seattle. Uh, and it's, it's known to, it's basically, you know, Canada's, uh, retirement village. Okay. Uh, and, and it's also a university town. Uh, so, you know, you hear a lot of references to just the town of the, the home of the newlywed and the newly dead. Uh, <laughs> it's got kind of a very, uh, you know, it's, it's slower. It's much slower than, you know, something than something like Vancouver or obviously Toronto and Montreal. Uh, so it's, you know, we kind of feel like we're hiding a little bit out here. Well, I was going to uh, say, you know, you grew up in Calgary thinking you would wind up someplace bigger and you wound up in a retirement village. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's it's really lovely and there's a good vibe and there's, um, you know, you feel like it's really friendly and you can just kind of relax and... And uh, like I said, hide a bit. You know, right. we're not we're not in Toronto. 
which feels always very sort of, you know, it's got a great energy, but you sort of, you need to give a lot to be in Toronto. You need to be in the right, you know, headspace. Yeah, no, I was in, I went to Toronto. My wife uh, and I were up there a couple of years ago for the film festival and I kind of tagged, oh, yeah. tagged along and got to, I, I rented a bicycle, which um, I like to do when I travel and especially when I'm in a place where I don't know where I am just because I think it's mm-hmm. a better way to see the place, you know, cause it, I don't know. There's something about being in subways and buses and, uh, even taxis that, uh, closes you off a little bit and, and, you know, prevents your, prevents you from being able to explore side streets and that kind of mm-hmm. thing, you know? So, so I was, how was biking in Toronto? Did you, were I, you mainly sort of in the, I'm a little bit suicidal, uh, when it comes to <laughs> biking, like I, cause like I will bike in an urban center, like I would bike around New York City, no problem. And my wife is See, a, that, that's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. I like the intensity of it. I'll bike. I'll bike around Los Angeles, and um, you know, it's kind of like skiing. Like I don't know if you ever ski or anything like that, but it's like the speed of it uh, and the intensity of it and the danger. Uh, it's kind of like skiing in trees. You just have to stay really alert. And so, right. uh, I don't know. I sort of like that. And obviously, you know, uh, you're, you're kind of hedging a little bit and hoping that the people driving uh, are paying attention too. But uh, you know, knock on wood, uh, <laughs> I've been okay so far. Uh, no, so I'm I'm so impressed by that. I don't even like biking in Victoria, and this isn't you know this is nothing compared to what I imagine you know biking in LA or something. I remember visiting my sister who where did she used to live? It's like Redondo Beach or something, and I went. You know, I said, okay, I'm in, I'm in California. I've got three days. Let's see everything. So basically we drove all around L.A., then we drove to San Francisco, then we went to Palo Alto, then we were, you know, we just went everywhere. Uh, and, but I remember distinctly her being so nervous driving just because, you know, it's just crazy. <laughs> you know, you had motorcycles, you know, basically going up a, up the, the lines, the, the lane dividing lines. Right? Oh, yeah. I'd never seen that before. No, that's actually, there's actually a name for that and I'm forgetting what it is, but yeah, you'll be driving. I've had it happen on multiple occasions where you're driving on the inner or on the freeway and somebody on, you know, one of these motorcycles just comes uh, blowing, you know, through the tiny space in between lanes. And it's like, you know, it's very easy to clip somebody. And I think it happens uh, from time to time, but, um, you know, I've come close just because I'm drifting or, you know, whatever I'm doing in my car. But, uh, I don't know. To me, like for some reason, I can buy. I, I, you know, being on a bicycle seems sane to me, but riding a motorcycle does not. And I don't know exactly why, but I can I can make sense of the former and not of the latter. Uh, I'm afraid of, of, you know, I think past a certain speed, I start to lose confidence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like some, something about a bike seems controlled to me. I don't know what it is. Interesting. Um, okay, so you're let's let's stick to. Uh, Calgary and your childhood, and then we'll move forward and get into, uh, you know, your writing life and your publishing history and everything. But w- when you were a child, what were you like? Like, the, give me some sort of uh, image of you, you know, uh, in your elementary school days. Were you, were you a shy kid? Were you uh, super outgoing? Were you always bookish? Uh, I would say I was shy and bookish, um, definitely. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, this was Calgary back in, like, the early 80s. Um, you know, I was often sort of one of, you know, two black students in, you know, in every school that I went to. And I just sort of felt like that gave me kind of an extra awkwardness. <laughs> I think I was naturally awkward and, and shy. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I didn't, I didn't imagine there was like a huge uh, no. amount of black people up in Calgary. No. Uh, I think now it's changed a bit. Um I mean, I haven't, I haven't lived there in so long, uh, but but definitely, I, from what I hear, there's sort of, you know, growing communities. Uh, but definitely, when I was a child, it was very very small, uh, and so yeah, I, I feel like that, you know, that coupled with a natural sort of shyness and reticence, awkwardness, just kind of uh, made me doubly awkward. Uh, but I spent, you know. Basically, every weekend, we were in the library. Uh, every Saturday, we would go and, and spend, like, you know, like, literally, like, seven or eight hours in the, the public library. You mean your whole family or just, like, you and your mom, or what, what, what was this? Uh, no, everybody but my mom. Oh, really? <laughs> she would stay home and she wasn't so interested watch TV or something. But my brother and my sister and, and my father, we all went off to the library and were there for hours, and... 
and what was great is that my parents, you know, there wasn't sort of, um, you know, there wasn't a great feeling of censorship in terms of what the kids should or shouldn't be reading. So I was allowed to take out, you know, just whatever the library would let me take out, which was pretty much anything. So I felt like I read really widely and, you know, maybe read stuff I shouldn't be reading, but it was all very interesting and kind of, I think it, it did inform my work later on. Well, okay. So when you talk about books that maybe, uh, you know, you were reading ahead of your time, were there any in particular that stuck to you? Can you point to one or two or is it just kind of a general feeling? Um, well, I remember always reading sort of beyond, um, or trying to read beyond the reading level that I was at. Um, you know, sometimes that wasn't very successful. So just trying to read books that my brother or sister were reading, uh, which was, you know, just all across the map. Uh, and, um, and stuff that didn't inform my writing. I would say things like, you know, like John Saul or V.C. Andrews, you know, reading this very young and kind of being like, I, oh, my God, like, <laughs> very traumatized by this. Yeah, I, re- I remember at all the... At the same time, feeling quite, you know, great that you were you were reading this, and this was supposed to be something very adult, so... Yeah, I remember all the teenage girls reading. Was it what was VC Andrews? Was that like Val- it was like Flowers in the Attic? Flowers in the Attic. Yeah, 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 yeah. The wind and... What was that? I never read that. What what is Flowers? Oh my in the god, Attic? it was like these kind of really terrible sort of dark family sagas and filled with you know murder and incest and just you know the the worst thing imaginable. You just take you know, the 10 worst things that you can think of and, and <laughs> probably in every V.C. Andrews novel. So, And those, yeah, things, just, those things sold like crazy. She made, yeah. a, she made a fortune writing about incest. Yeah, she did. And I actually think that, uh, are they still being written? Somebody uh, else is writing them under her name? or Yeah, isn't that weird how that happens? Like somebody that gets, somebody builds up a following and they just like, you know, because I want to say, uh, oh no, you know what I, what it makes me, uh, what, I, what I'm thinking of is when uh, Peanuts, that, uh, cartoon ended and Charles Schultz insisted that there could be no continuation and uh, I, re- I remember liking that decision you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. like instead because mm-hmm. I think a lot of these comics once they've built up a following they can just transfer it off and somebody else can draw them but yeah uh, which is so weird yeah that seems wrong to me yeah uh, it seems like necrophilia you know on the part of the publisher <laughs> that's what it seems like um, so let me ask you, like, cause my, uh, general impression, and I say this somewhat tongue in cheek of Canadian people is that they're, uh, extremely nice. Uh, they're not maybe, uh, I don't know what it is. There's just something about American perception of Canada, or at least my specific American perception of Canada is that it's just a nicer country than America and that America, um, you know, has its, has its positives, uh, but also has, uh, I don't know, just a more aggressive temperament. And so uh, when you talk about being one of the only black uh, children in your school growing up and feeling, uh, you know, how that sort of uh, added to your feelings of awkwardness, like was there, uh, you know, a lot of racism in Canada and in Calgary that you detected or was it not quite as much or not at all? Like what was that situation like there? Um, I mean, because you're a child, it's kind of hard to assess and you know, you're, it's basically you're growing up in a vacuum, and so uh, I didn't feel, how would I put it, you know, I didn't feel terribly outcast because I was black. It wasn't anything like that. It just, um, you know, every once in a while, basically you, you go through your life and you're playing, and every once in a while there would be an incident, and and uh, you would think, oh, my God, you know, right. <laughs> that's right, I am different. But, I mean, it certainly wasn't a pervasive, everyday sort of thing. You just... Yeah. yeah you just and what, what, well, what about nationally? Like, is there, a, you know, there, I guess there's not really as much of a history. I mean, uh, I, I, forgive me for not knowing Canadian history as well as I should, but obviously here in the States we have um, this long, ugly history uh, of mm-hmm. r- race relations and of uh, slavery and all that kind of stuff. Like, in Canada... Uh, not so much of that, like a much a more inclusive culture. Is that an appropriate or accurate uh, assessment? Uh, I would say that certainly now and for the last um, 30, 40 years we've been living, you know, there's this great sense of multiculturalism uh, and a sense of every everybody being included. Um, and this isn't just a racial thing. This is just, you know, as we're saying, different cultures that, you know, you can come here from the Ukraine or from you know, Somalia, and, and everybody is Canadian, uh, you know, once you've, 
you've gotten your citizenship. Uh, I would say that, you know, we don't have, obviously, it's not the same history, but there is that sort of really kind of dark history in terms of, you know, first people, uh, our First Nations uh, people. Uh, And so that's, uh, you know, that's definitely something that, well, you mean people who are opposed to this, like influx of uh, immigration and, and whatnot, who want to? Oh no, no, I, I've just jumped. But uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm mixing a few things here. But um, no, no, I think that in general, this is, uh, you know, a country that's, you know, I've done tons of traveling and spoken to tons of, of uh, you know, immigrants living in Europe and, you know, just all around. And you know, I, I feel like Canada is, I feel like it's you know, pat ourselves on the back. I feel like we've done a great job. Yeah, see, the, the, uh, this... People feel really, you know, at home. And in, but, but I, you know, just if I think about in terms of an ugly history, um, you know, there's that whole First Nations history. You mean like the Native Americans? Is, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like Native about? Americans. Okay, so Native Canadians, for lack of a better term. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> the term would be first people. First Okay, so that's what you guys call them. But, like, the, the, their displacement and then the, the attempt at making reparations. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, okay. Um, so, but, you know, what you're saying generally, that aside, sort of confirms what I've always suspected, is that Canada is a country uh, that really works. And I feel like, at least in the last... I don't know. I don't know how long it's been lasting, but it just feels like America increasingly uh, is either more dramatic or uh, more idiotic. Like, I don't feel like American people, or at least the people that I hang out with, have nearly so uh, sunny of an assessment of our own country and, and especially our own government and uh, just the way that things seem so dysfunctional. Uh, but when I look when I look to Canada, I don't know. Uh, it just seems smarter or something. It's in a better phase. uh, (laughs) Well, well, I'll I'll accept the compliment on behalf of the the Canadian people. Tell the Canadian people (laughs) that I think they're doing a good job. And I'll even say this. This is another funny thing is that when I was traveling, uh, when I was young, and, and, you know, I should also say, uh, you know, I'm happy to be American. I know that there are positives to it, and I feel lucky, uh, especially comparatively, you know, for the opportunities and and so on and so forth. So if anyone out there is listening and, and feeling enraged by my criticism, um, you know, I'm not completely off the map in terms of my discontent. Uh, but I will say that when I was traveling uh, years ago, when I was just out of college, I noticed, uh, you know, over in Europe, I was doing like the trains or whatever. And I noticed that there was a contempt uh, for America. Like I did notice that. Like there were, you know, a- among other students from other countries, it was like, oh, the Americans and blah, blah, blah. You know, and I don't know what exactly that stemmed from, you know, but I, I detected it. And I also noticed that Canada was beloved. And I remember the, tra- you know, traveling, the students would have like patches sewn onto their backpacks, you know, with yes, the flags. Yes, I remember that. And I remember bumping into an American or somebody with one of these patches and, uh, you know, this Canadian patch and having this conversation and where are you from? And then it soon, you know, emerged that, uh, you know, this person wasn't Canadian at all. <laughs> <laughs> they were from like exactly you know, that's what i wanted Buffalo to do yes i was like i'm going to become canadian this is this is working out much better for them uh <laughs> i'm just going to start telling people because i don't know i just felt like everyone liked it i felt like the uh you know and especially among the english-speaking uh travelers from commonwealth countries there was a sort of kinship so that like yeah, i don't know that sort of uh, extended the the network of friendliness if that makes any sense mm-hmm. like i don't know yeah. if you, do you feel a sense of kinship with those countries or people from those countries but there seemed to be like a familiarity among travelers or, or some sort of connection you know connection but um yeah i just remember those patches and i remember thinking like god it's really kind of a it kind of hinders you to be uh you know walking around with an american flag uh, you know tattooed to your backpack it's not gonna it's not going to get you the best rate at the youth hostel. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> or the no, best. That, that is true. That is true. Yeah. And I, I remember having these conversations with people, and it's true. There is, um, you know, at least back when I was traveling, there was that sort of, yeah, a real love for Canada, and people wanting to, oh, you know, from Canada, wanting to talk about it, and and having a sense of Canadians as being very friendly. Yeah, Canadians are friendly. The country itself doesn't really mess with anybody. Uh, nobody messes with it. Uh, I don't know. It just seems like a congenial nation. It's utopia. <laughs> it's utopia. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, and you know what? I. It's weird uh, just to hear somebody, you know, be 
generally positive about their country, you know, and, and in, not in a, in a really nationalist way. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the, it feels yeah. like, it feels like people in America, um, or at least the, in the media, you know, you're either chest thumping and flag waving in this really heated, like ultra patriotic way, uh, or you're complaining about something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm being facetious too. We do have our problems and, um, you know, there's, you know, I won't even start, but um, generally I'm very, very, you know, I'm very proud to be Canadian. Proud to be Canadian. All right. So uh, take me into your high school years. You know, like you, you're, you're growing up, you're still in Calgary, you're bookish, you're going to the library, you're reading. Like, what are you reading at this point? If you're reading V.C. Andrews when you were like five, <laughs> like what were you reading by the time you got to high school? <laughs> um, what did I read? I, th- I read a lot of... Um, I think just a lot of the, the, the classics, the Canadian classics, um, you know, as well as kind of branching out. I had some really terrific English teachers who, you know, basically could see that, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, was on their team. So they kind of directed me in my reading uh, beyond the classroom, which was great. So I was reading a lot of, um, I read a lot of Margaret Atwood. I read a lot of uh, Timothy Finley, um, Mordecai Richler. Uh, Alice Munro. Mm-hmm. You know, these were some. These are some of our our great figures. Uh, I was also reading. I remember reading 1984, uh, which was on a, you know, just a course list in the class. But it, it wasn't required reading, but something that you could kind of jump off and and just look at it on your own. And being I was utterly blown away. Like it just was. I never read anything like it. Obviously, and it was just, you know, it just opened up my mind. Uh, to what fiction could do, and that's yeah, it's definitely one of my favorites. Mm. And so, were you writing at this point, creatively? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd always sort of written, uh, probably since I was twelve or thirteen. You know, I, was, I thought, okay, I'm going to be a great poet. Uh, <laughs> I'm a lot of really, uh, you know, like doggerel kind of verse, um, and then started writing short fiction. You know, I, I remember staying up. You know, it'd be like 14, and stay up all night on the weekend just writing these stories and just go on and on. Um, but I don't even know where half of that ended up. Uh, but yeah, I always felt like uh, like I could write, or that I, you know, like this is something I could ostensibly do with my life. You knew that from a young age that you had that feeling. Like, how young were you? Like, right at the dawn of adolescence, essentially, is when it yeah, started. Yeah, yeah, probably about 12 or 13. I felt like, okay, this is something I can do. Uh, but then. You know, later on, I, I, you know, I was in high school and I was thinking, well, what, you know, what should I do? What should I study? And a teacher told me to study writing at University of Victoria uh, because she said, um, I think W.D. Belgardson uh, was teaching there. Uh, I think they were just getting on Jack Hodgins, uh, who's a terrific writer. And so I thought that sounds good. But I thought that, you know, Practically speaking, I probably can't actually make a living at writing. So, you know, what I was going to do was study journalism and, uh, you know, go on from there and maybe just write novels on the weekend. Uh, and and then I had a summer job at the CBC, which is, you know, like our NPR. And I remember talking to uh, one of the staff members there who worked in the music department and telling him my plan, you know, I was going to write novels on the weekend. And he said, uh, he said, okay, don't do it. <laughs> he said, you know, that was my plan. And, you know, I'm still here and I've got, I've written maybe three chapters of a novel over the last 20 years. And so he said, you know, if you want to write novels or poems or whatever it is, just, just do that. And I thought, okay, well, that sounds like a plan. <laughs> uh, and then I immediately turned around and enrolled in, you know, the journalism course at <laughs> University of Victoria. Because I thought, okay, well, you know, that's all well and good as advice, but it's not very, very practical. So I ended up doing a few journalism courses. Uh, I took first year. I think it's just the first year. Uh, and then I remember that first assignment. We were told to sort of you know, go and interview somebody, you know, something very kind of banal or stupid, like, you know, ask 20 people's opinions on the color red. Uh, and I remember, you know, going out and going to student union building and, you know, sc- you know, just kind of skulking up to this, this 
lone person sitting in the, you know, sitting in a corner, <laughs> opening my mouth to ask her, you know, her opinion about the color red, and then just freezing up, and then just kind of like sinking back into the shadows. <laughs> and I just, I just thought, you know, I can't, I just can't do it. <laughs> I just can't go and. Uh, so are you? Yeah, are, you are you a shy? Are you a shy person? Yeah, I'm a very shy person. So it's just um, I just thought I can't do it. So I went away and made up all the quotes, <laughs> handed it in, and just thought, okay, this is obviously not not the profession for me. Yeah. So okay. So then what? Uh, then I started studying poetry actually because there are two really tremendous poets, um, Patrick Lane and Lorna Crozier, uh, who were both working at at uh, UVic at that time. And teaching poetry at a lower, you know, the lower levels, kind of entry levels. Uh, and then I, I thought, okay, I'm going to be a poet. This is great. Uh, and then I realized that, you know, it just, the poetry hadn't gotten any better. <laughs> Still writing at, you know, the level that I'd written at when I was really young, and it was just not so great. Uh, and, you know, the poems started getting longer and longer and more involved, and it was just clear that I was itching to move towards narrative. So. Yeah, I, so I did you change your with, did you change your course of study into? To, I did change my course of study to fiction, and that's where I I stayed. Okay, and so that's interesting though when you think about it that you would be uh, in a state where the uh, quality of your poetry in your estimation had not progressed, but you felt like you could move forward in narrative. Like you would think that um, somebody who's a really gifted writer and who has uh, that impulse and is willing to do the work. Uh, could be good at any kind of writing, but that's not always the case. You know, certain right ri- certain writers have very defined forms. I mean, and some writers, it should be said, uh, can cross over. You know, there's some uh, very gifted novelists yeah. who can write nonfiction. Like, do you feel like, uh, you know, long form narrative, long form narrative uh, fiction is where you you know where you really excel, and then other forms maybe not so much, or do you feel like you might be willing or able to branch out elsewhere? Um. I actually think that that yeah, definitely. I would, you know, I, I enjoy writing nonfiction and I enjoy writing short stories, and and so I, I definitely think that, you know, in the future there are other kinds of books for me. It's just in terms of poetry. Um, my husband is actually he's also a writer, and he writes. He's mainly a poet. Uh, he also writes fiction, and he's tremendous at both. And just reading his poetry made me realize that, okay, this particular style or this particular genre of writing is not my my strength. But, yeah, yeah, I would really love to write, you know, like a biography, say, one of these days. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I'm really interested in biography, too. I just, I worry, uh, it seems like the, the, the prospect of doing all that research seems overwhelming. You know, the, oh, the, the level of, yeah, but the level of detail, like, I just wonder... Uh, you know, that seems like a, a huge undertaking, you know, I think I would enjoy it if I had the right subject, but I think that, uh, you know, I was watching, uh, like Robert Caro just published the, I want to say the third installment of his big biography on Lyndon Johnson down here. Oh, great. And he's got this very exhaustive and sort of antiquated research style where he's got like note cards plastered to the wall of his office. And, you know, we're talking like thousands of these things and, um, it's, you know, it's really intense if you're going to do somebody's life, obviously. Uh, yeah. But do you have a sense of who you would want to do? Like, do you have somebody that you would dream of writing a biography about? No, this is my problem. <laughs> <laughs> There's nobody that I could imagine. I mean, you spend, it's, as you're saying, it's years and years, and just the minutia, and the, I mean, everything has to be, has to be just so, and yeah, just tons of research, and I just, I guess maybe I haven't found anybody yet who who I'd like to spend that much time with. Like maybe <laughs> literary biography? Or are you thinking political or, you know? No, I, I would think literary. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like writing writing the life of a certain writer. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be, you know, just fascinating. Okay. And so when you were in college or you were in your younger years, like did you have any kind of uh, crazy streak? Like talking to you, you sound like extremely well-adjusted. I can't imagine you went completely wild at any point. But then... <laughs> Uh, there's another part of me that's like, okay, she's living uh, on Victoria Island among like hippies and uh, you know octogenarians. Like, there's a chance that perhaps you uh, <laughs> went completely nuts when you were 19 for like six months. Like, did that happen? Um, I think definitely leaving home and um, 
you know, being out on your own for the first time. I think I was 17 when I moved here. Um, I wouldn't say I went nuts, but certainly, you know, you're all of a sudden all of the, you know, so many restrictions are (laughs) removed. So you find yourself just, you know, trying things out and testing your limits and things like that. So so definitely uh, with that. I would say, yeah. I mean, so did you have like a pronounced drug phase or was it fairly <laughs> mild? Was it mild? No, it was pretty mild. I think I'm generally a pretty mild person. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I also went overseas in 2006 and was living in like the outbuildings of uh, of a castle uh, on a hilltop in Stuttgart or just outside of Stuttgart in Germany. Uh, and that was a time where, and everybody was under 35, was like between like 20 and 35. What was this for? Uh, this was a residency that I had. Okay, yeah, I was going to get to this. Uh, you've you've had lots of these things, it seems like. In your biography, it's like you've had fellowships yeah. or residencies all over the world. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah, this was, uh, how does that work? Um, I guess, you know, I just... Apply? Writing a book <laughs> with, uh, yeah, with, um, you know, where... It required some research, uh, you know, in Germany, and then I just applied. And uh, one of the first ones that I got was this amazing, um, you know, this amazing residency uh, just outside of Stuttgart. And, you know, you're there for it's either half a year, between half a year and a year. Uh, I was there a little bit over a year. Uh, living in, you know, these amazing apartments that are, in the outbuildings of this this castle, this small little castle, and it's just yeah, it was just so much so much fun and just such a I mean, this sounds cliche, but such a learning experience and just you know everybody it was people from all around the world um, between twenty and thirty five and all different you know artistic genres. So you painters and dancers and. What's it called? What is this called? Oh, it's called Academy Schloss Solitude. Okay. And do you speak German? Um, very, you know, kind of a work, work, workable German. Right. Very badly. Uh-huh. Very badly. Um, while I was there, I took over a period of four months, uh, five days a week, I think five hours a day, I was learning German. Uh, that that was of your own volition, or was that a a, a, a stipulation of the no, residency? No, no, no. This was no. This was definitely of my own volition. Oh, okay. Uh, and you know, I just really wanted to to immerse myself in the language and the culture, and um, you know, but I don't have anybody to speak German with, you know, in my in my everyday life, and so this isn't. It's just kind of atrophied. That's the hard part about a foreign language is that unless you have a daily use for it, unless you're either living there and you're immersed or you're at home with a native speaker, uh, it's, it's really this hard. That's exactly to... it. Yeah. Yeah. And I studied, um, you know, and I speak French as well because, you know, in, in Canada you can do French immersion. So from the time you're in kindergarten until you're in high school, you know, half of your classes are in French. Uh, and I did this as well. But, again, um, West Coaster, you know, there's not... There aren't a ton of people uh, that I can speak with, so that's also. Are you still? Are you relatively fluent in French? Uh, I would say, like when I get into, like I was in Belgium a couple of years ago, and you know, it's either you speak Dutch or you speak French, or, and so, uh, so you know, after being there for a while, you can kind of get up to speed. Uh-huh. It but, com- it uh huh. It comes. It comes back more quickly. Yeah, than it comes yeah. back, but definitely there are holes. Sure. And, you know, those holes are getting bigger. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but so when you were in Stuttgart, just to like, because we started by talking about uh, you know wildness and and complete debauchery or whatever, and then you 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 somehow uh, segued into Stuttgart. Was there was was there craziness happening there? Because you had well, all there these... was a lot of craziness, yeah. And so, but I would say that you know I, I was mainly on the periphery of the craziness. So yeah. it's obviously not. You were observing. Uh, if I think about it, it's not really in my nature, but it's it's always fun to watch, isn't it? Yeah, no. I mean, I can <laughs> I can imagine that some of the people there uh, were so excited to be on this boondoggle, to have a place to live, and I'm assuming I'm assuming it was all paid for, right? Uh, yes. And so, did you have a stipend as well, or was it because like that's the thing about Europe is they actually give money to the arts. You know, you can get yeah, these. Yeah, very, very, especially um, especially Germany, just so so um, incredibly 
uh, generous when it comes to the arts funding. So, okay, so yeah, so there must have been some people there who were um, enjoying themselves immensely in that situ- you know, situation. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Do you have any sto- yeah. with, uh, any good stories, anything that we oh, should hear about? Nothing I could say without incriminating people. Okay, all right. I won't. I won't press you then. I won't make you uh, spill the beans. But uh, so let me let me ask you about other places that you've been. Just out of my own curiosity, like in addition to Stuttgart, um, can you like where else have you done these sorts of residencies? Uh, I was in Iceland. Oh wow! Um, Eastern Iceland, which is um, quite different than being in in the West, like in Reykjavik. Uh huh. So that was, that was really interesting to me. I was there in the winter. Uh, I was there like November, December. So no, was... no wonder you got that one. No, no one else is applying. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be very competitive. We'll be. We'll send you to Eastern Iceland for the winter. Yeah, but you know it was really lovely. It oh, was, yeah. um, you know, it's almost complete darkness the entire time. I think we had sort of the sun would. Well, you'd get a bit of light maybe around eleven in the morning. It would be gone by two thirty in the afternoon and. The rest was just, you know, silence and darkness, but it's the perfect environment in which to write in a lot of ways. Just, yeah. You know, you really turn inward, and and, um, and also you're kind of... <laughs> you're, 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 part, de- you're deeply depressed. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just write, you and then... You would think uh, so. You would think so, but it actually wasn't, you know, it wasn't depression. It was just this real inwardness and silence, and, and yeah, I just, I thought it was great. You get a lot of work done? Uh, I did, yeah, I really did, and also you're in this gigantic house in the middle of nowhere, which, <laughs> which is kind of a by yourself, or were you, you was your husband be... with you? No, no, I was by myself. Holy cow! Yeah, and so there was a restaurant attached, but you know, after four p.m., that closed down, and so it's like The Shining. Yeah, it, it could feel like The Shining at times, but yeah, which is really, you know, really amazing a really amazing experience so wait you were by yourself in this house with with a restaurant attached or were there other artists there too was it sort of like a... no no it's, it's just you oh my god and there's an apartment that they've kind of cut out of this building which is like a cultural center slash restaurant uh and then the restaurant would close at about four uh and um you know there'd be no tourists or anything you you would you know sometimes have a few tourists coming up Every once in a while, but you know, after four, everything was done, and it was just you and a weird, it's like massive, massive house, and which used to belong to um, the Icelandic writer. Uh, sorry, I said Bjork, but that's a bad, that's a bad, <laughs> bad Iceland humor. Yeah, <laughs> uh, to Gunnar Gunnarsson, who was one of uh, you know the great writers of Iceland. So. Sure, sure. Um, in fact, I think I want to say I talked about him with somebody on this show. Uh, no, you know who it was? It was Ryan Budno. He's a, he wrote a novel called Blueprints of the Afterlife, and he and I were talking about it. He's got this like deep fascination with Iceland, and he had been over yeah. there. So maybe maybe that's who we were talking about. But yeah. um, so it's a totally you know, fascinating country, just unlike anywhere else. Yeah, I want to I I want to go. I you know I've heard good things, and uh, I've seen pictures. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So how do you find out about these things? Like, are you doing internet research or is there some, like, you know, well of uh, fellowships and residencies or some sort of site that organizes all this information that I'm not aware of? There is a site, actually. Um, the one that I tended to use was, uh, it's called Trans Artists. Okay. And they have a site and they've organized all their residencies by, by country and also by... Um, you know, by artistic practice, these kinds of things. It's really, really great. So, and and so, uh, how often are you applying? Are you applying to like lots and lots and lots of these in hopes of landing one, or is your hit rate pretty good? Um, my hit rate was pretty good. Yeah, I'm not applying anymore. Uh, just, you know, I have a, a nine month old, and I, I feel I'm, you know. <laughs> pretty i want to say pretty stationary but that's not quite true either well i was going to say like can you bring a family like that would sort of that would sort of ruin the vibe in stuttgart if i showed up with my 21 month old (laughs) actually you know there were a lot of families in stuttgart there were family apartments yeah yeah absolutely people came with their families uh and yeah there are some residencies where definitely i mean it's 
you're encouraged to bring your family and it's it's terrific so yeah you could absolutely go so but you're not doing that now that you have a child you're sort of slowing down on the residencies just at least for Um, a little while well i you know i had the child kind of at the same time that um the book uh my new book came out so Mm. it's been a lot of touring with the book uh so it's just i mean we've done tons of traveling but it's all it's all promotion uh and these kinds of things sure sure so let's get to your writing. Let's talk about, uh, you know, how it started, you know, in a, in a professional sense. Like you're in school, you're obviously studying this stuff, but when did you really uh, buckle down and start to work in a professional manner with that level of dedication? And when did you really start to make it go uh, at your first fiction? Um, probably when I was, how old was I? Maybe 21, I won a grant from the Canada Council uh, they had some kind of, you know, emerging uh, artist grant that they were doing just for one year, and I, I managed to win one. And so I thought, okay, well, I've got this money. I, I should really, you know, now I now I have to sit down and do something serious. Like this is, you know, I just have to do it. So I probably over a period of, um, you know, I just finished graduate school. Uh, in Baltimore, and my husband went to graduate school in Virginia, but he had one extra year. So for the summer after I graduated, I went down to Charlottesville and was living with him, and we were both writing, like, furiously and intensely, and, you know, for like 12 hours a day, and, you know, not sleeping, and... Jesus, see, this is where you went crazy. It was just caffeine. Yeah, it made me even crazy. It was, you know, really hot, and it was just, it just felt like a, you'd be in Inferno, and we were just writing like mad. Uh, and then when the money ran out, uh, I came back up, and I was living in Toronto uh, for a year, uh, working in a legal services office, uh, and also writing, like writing every night, and writing in the mornings, and writing on the weekends, and, you know, just trying to stuff it in where I could. Uh, and then when that job, uh, you know, when I was done that, I went back down to Virginia and finished uh, my first novel. So, and that was, uh, you know, that was the second life of Samuel Tyne, and that was published in 2004. And so how did that publication process go? Was it, was it difficult or did it, did it was it a, a quick situation once you submitted? That was a very quick situation. Yeah, it, it seemed to go very swiftly. Just you, um, you give me, tell me the story. What happened? You found an agent, obviously, correct? Yeah, I found an agent through uh, a friend of mine who had just done a book of short stories, and you know she had a great agent, and so I just submitted it to this agent and heard back, you know, like two days later, and you know she sold the book within two months, I think it was, and you know it sold it in Canada, and then. A few months after that, sold it in England, and then uh, sold it in the States, and yeah, it, it was very uh, seamless and quite different from the process of selling my second book. Okay, so okay, well, that makes me feel better because I was starting to like be like a little bit, uh, <laughs> starting to be a little bit angry, you know, like you, you're, you're traveling around the world, living in castles, and your your books are just selling everywhere. Uh, so what's happening? Uh, what happened with the second book? Oh, it, it was a nightmare. Uh, the publication process was just, it was just a nightmare. Um, you know, it had been, I guess, like seven years uh, between that first book and the second book. And, you know, not because I wasn't writing, but because it was just such a, a difficult and heartbreaking process. Um, I wrote a second novel that uh, didn't end up being published at all. Uh, it was, you know, completely rejected, uh, and I had to put it in a drawer. Uh, and then I started writing Half Blood Blues. You know, I managed to sort of, I said, okay, I'm going to give myself one last chance. Uh, and I'm going to do another book, and I'm going to do it completely on my own terms. So I'm going to write it exactly how, you know, how I'd like to to do it. And, you know, not really thinking of, uh, of a readership or anything like that, and just having fun. And, um, you know, that novel then made the rounds and was, was um, it ended up being bought in England, uh, which I thought was great, but it just had the hardest time uh, in Canada and finally ended up um, at a bit of a smaller house, you know, a a great house, uh, a Canadian house, 
called Key Porter, uh, a bit of a smaller house. And um, and then just probably about three months before it was due to be released in Canada, the publishing house went bankrupt. Oh Jesus! <laughs> you know they'd done up they'd done up ARCs and everything was all a go, and then all of a sudden I get this email from my editor saying, I know, I don't mean to alarm you, but, um, you know, I, I'm basically packing up all my stuff. And, and But don't worry, she said, you know, the, the house is it's, going to continue to exist. You know, they'd fired everybody, but except for like three people were there, but they said, oh, no, no. The janitor is still here. It's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't worry about it. Uh, but then, you know, you could kind of uh, see that things weren't going well, and then they ultimately went bankrupt. Ugh. And so I had, you know, I, I still had this this English publication, which was great. But you know, being a Canadian, you want to publish in obviously in your home country, and you know there was just nothing. Uh, and then the book made the rounds in its finished form. Uh, you know, went back to a few publishers, all of whom rejected it. Uh, and then finally, uh, after that process. Um, my husband's novel had come out earlier that year, and he said, you know, would you like me to show this uh, to my editor, uh, who, you know, read it and was extremely enthusiastic and bought the book very quickly. Uh, and, you know, in that way, kind of saved the book. Wow. So what's your husband's name, what, what, and what has he published? Uh, his name is Stephen Price, and he writes both poetry and fiction. Okay. Uh, so his novel was called Into That Darkness. Okay. It was about um, an earthquake uh, basically destroying Victoria because we're overdue for the big one. Oh, right, yeah. That's something to look forward to, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I feel the same way in Los Angeles. You know, we sort of live with that, you know, but what, yeah, what are you going to yeah. do? yeah. Um, okay, so this is a good story. I mean, it's it's not. I mean, I know it was difficult and painful and all the rest, but uh, the book, uh, you know, after going through all that it went through to find a home in Canada, uh, you know, was a, a finalist for the Man Booker. It won uh, this was it called the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Uh, Giller, yeah. So I mean, this is an award-winning, uh, you know, well-reviewed and uh, decorated novel, and so I mean, you must feel a sense of triumph after having so much trouble getting it published. And it just yeah, it's, it's, it serves as proof that people uh, in publishing don't always know better, and that just because a manuscript is getting rejected doesn't necessarily mean uh, that it's not good or it's not worthy of publication. Yeah, and I think we have a sense in the industry, especially now, that things are sort of a you know like, like a book, not even a book by book basis, but a lot is based on track records. Um, you know, has is this novel is this novelist somebody who's likely to sell tons of copies uh, and then you sort of look at their previous sales track record and go from there. And I think that that's really, that's really short-sighted. Um, I think the industry used to be, basically, you had writers who would write several books before anybody, you know, before they had sort of a runaway success. Uh, you look at somebody like, you know, Cormac McCarthy or... Um, he didn't have, he didn't sell books. He, Cormac McCarthy didn't sell any books or, you know, really sell books until... Uh, and make some money until he was like oh, in his late sixties or early seventies. I remember him saying that, you know, and he might have been somewhat tongue in cheek. I know he was, uh, you know, getting great reviews and winning awards and all the rest, but you know, he didn't really explode until he was almost seventy. You know? Right, uh, so. right. And this used to be a climate where you could write several books, and you know, the, it was all sort of, you know, McCarthy's, you know, he's an incredible writer. And could you imagine if? You know, they just at some point had stopped publishing his books because they didn't earn money. I think that that's, I mean, it's it's not a business in which, from my perspective, that it's, you know, every book doesn't have to earn out. I think that the investment in careers is, is sort of being put by the wayside. Um, yeah. You know, this is unfortunate. Yeah, well, no, it's, it seems like uh, the publishing business increasingly looks like the movie business where yeah, the, yeah. In, the, independent, yeah. the independent books or the independent films, you know, are harder and harder to get through the system. Yeah, but, you know, they're looking for these blockbusters. And I, I guess I understand that at a business, like kind of bottom line level, but it certainly doesn't, you know, it's not a situation that really uh, nurtures, uh, you know, the kinds of careers and the kinds of books that, uh, you know, tend to 
uh, stand the test of time, if that makes if that's a way of putting it. So with regard to Half Blood Blues, um, you know, has the book sold, uh, you know, beyond your expectations and in, in, in or in line with your publisher's expectations, or is it more of a case where, uh, you know, the critical response and the kinds of awards have come in? Um, but the actual sales numbers, you know, you're hoping will, you know, improve over time or improve with the next book? Uh, no, I, I think it's exceeded my expectations, <laughs> which were, you know... A, which were incredibly low, like let's I, be honest. Well, yeah, I mean, I was just, <laughs> like I said, I was just writing for myself, and I thought, okay, well, hopefully this, you know, hopefully this will be published. Right. Um, and that was, but yeah, it's, uh, the book's done, done very well and much... You know, it, beyond my wildest fantasies, and so I'm really, I feel really blessed and really grateful because it's, you know, it's not an easy business. No, it's not. And so, do you? Uh, did you sell it? And I'm, I'm imagining you sold the rights in multiple countries beyond, uh, you know, England and Canada. It's uh, and, and the states. I mean, where, where else is it being published? Um, it's a good question. Uh. You're like I'm. I'm being published in so many countries. I can't even remember which ones. <laughs> that sounds really terrible. But just, just, um, you, 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 you think in terms of continents now. That's the way you roll. <laughs> no, I, I mean I could. I could probably come up with a list, but it's just a lot. Yeah, yeah. It, I just feel so incredibly, incredibly grateful to to have a readership. Wow. Well, good for and, you. So. uh what are you working on now? I mean, you've done this big book tour. Uh, is the, is it still continuing? Are you still, you know, doing that part of it? Or are you now working on uh, other, you know, the next book? Uh, it's still continuing. Uh, we're leaving for we go to London in two days, uh, and still doing a lot of <clears throat> festivals and things uh, in Canada. So um, I think probably, yeah. Who knows when I'll get back to my desk? I'm hoping get back to my desk for the next few months do you miss it i mean does does this i really do i mean you're a shy person you said so like does this part of it where you're going off and talking to people and giving readings and answering questions and talking to people like me does that uh does that part of it uh wear on you or are you finding yourself able to do it no it doesn't wear on me at all in fact i'm really i mean you spend like i'm just so i mean i keep saying this uh and you know, repeating myself, but I'm just so incredibly grateful uh, for the good fortune that that my work has has received, and and I just you know I just feel so incredibly grateful that you can't complain about anything, uh, and you know I, I just you know I'm enjoying it. It's it's a different thing than writing, obviously, and it's not something that maybe I'm you know it's a perfect match for my temperament, but I really enjoy talking to people about about the book and hearing the different perspectives and you know well it's a high it's a high class problem you know it's a good problem to have (laughs) exactly all these people want me to come to their festivals (laughs) i have to go to london oh god um well that's awesome and so do you know what your next book is i mean do you have a sense of where you want to go or even like an inkling are you starting completely from scratch when you finally get back to your desk um i have an inkling i have an idea um yeah, I've got. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely have an inkling. I definitely know what what story uh, I would like to tell. And you're keeping that. You're keeping that. Uh, you know, under your hat. You're not going to tell me what it is. No, I, I kind of. I'm somebody who has to write in complete secrecy. I know that that might sound ridiculous, but no, it, no. Even, you know, I don't even tell my husband really what I'm working on. It's oh, something wow. that I just kind of have to, you know, keep it quiet, and then it's just sort of. You keep Delicious. your you keep your laptop in a vault at night. Is that what you do? <laughs> yeah, I would if I could. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> well, now well. if you sell some more books, you can buy yourself a vault. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, well, Essie, I, I, I'll tell you, it's been really great talking with you. I appreciate it. I congratulate you on all the success with Half Blood Blues, and uh, good luck on the rest of your tour. And good luck to you when you finally do get back to your desk to write. Oh, thank you so much, Brad. I really enjoyed it. All right, you guys, there it is. That's the program. That is Essie Adugin. Uh What a delight. What a wonderful uh, person to talk with. Really enjoyed it. She seems to emanate goodness. That's what I'm saying right now. Go get her book. It's called Half-Blood Blues. It is available now from Picador, uh, paperback originals. If you want to check out Essie on the web, just go to com. You can also find her on Facebook. 
This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy. Come follow me there. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to today's sponsor, Soho Press. Don't forget to check out Zombie, the new book by J.R. Angelella, now available in paperback and ebook formats. Visit SohoPress.com to learn more about this debut literary novel that Garth Stein calls, quote, a crazy, wicked knockout, end quote, and Ned Vizzini calls, quote, a bracing tale of a fractured mind. That's Zombie. It's by J.R. Angelella. It's available right now. You can go get it. You can read it. You can buy it for a friend. Uh, otherwise, what else? The internet, giant insects, uh, random tangents, viruses, sleep deprivation. Uh, my mind is obviously scattered a little bit. It's a little bit soft. I'm not as sharp as I usually am. Uh, too much computer time, too little sleep. It's a beautiful day, though, right now, currently, uh, where I'm sitting. And I'm hoping to get outside later to do some walking around, possibly some light calisthenics. Uh, I'm going to try to enjoy uh, some fresh air or some semi-fresh air. Uh, you know, just sort of enjoy my surroundings. Notice what I notice and accept the temporary nature of all phenomena and breathe in my reality on a second-by-second basis without unnecessary judgment. How's that? So thanks for listening. Uh, Once again, I appreciate it. Please remember that Jackson Pollock was classified as 4F for psychiatric problems and thus never drafted in World War II, and that Gertrude Stein once said, quote, I like a view, but I like to sit with my back to it, end quote. Uh, I'll be back again soon with more rambling, uh, some more dialogue, some more internal deliberations, all of it designed to accommodate you on days when you feel uh, like a dog in outer space. (laughs) 